Jesus welcomes flagrant but forgiven sinners and that we're the kind of people he wants to be related to forever. I mean, that, that's an incredible, that's a, that's a good word of grace for people like you and me. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Nancy Guthrie. Nancy teaches the Bible to women at our church, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and at conferences worldwide. She's also the host of Help Me Teach the Bible, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition, and the author of numerous books, including Saints and Scoundrels and the Story of Jesus with Crossway. Today, Nancy and I discuss some of the less well-loved characters of Scripture, like tax collectors and scribes and Pharisees, and even Judas Iscariot, Jesus' betrayer. She also highlights what we can learn from Jesus' scandalous family tree and why it's good news for sinners like us. Let's get started. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Oh, happy to be with you. We all know the Bible is one big story. Right? It's, it stretches back thousands of years to the very beginning of history. And uh, because it's a story, it's, it's got all of these lively characters in it that we're also familiar with. And I think we spend a lot of attention, a lot of time focusing on the heroes of the story. Uh, people who trusted God and saved the day. God used them in big ways. Uh, but scripture also has a lot of uh, scoundrels. And... So I, my, my first question is, why is it important for us to know the stories of the scoundrels and not just the heroes? Well, I think all of the people that we are, inter- that we are introduced to, especially in the story of Jesus, uh, it's important that we look at them because they all have, it's, it's like we can see something more clearly about Jesus because of their interaction with him. Maybe they have a misunderstanding about him that that we realize, oh, I have that misunderstanding too. Um, We can learn how to respond to him based on how people choose to respond to him or to not respond to him. So, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, of, of these characters, they just, they introduce us to an aspect of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, and why he is necessary, mm. why he is sufficient, why he is a s- essential. Um, and so I, th- I think that they just help us see him from another integral angle. Mm. Yeah, that, that seems then to, to really emphasize that um, we're sinners, right? Like there's, we see ourselves we are? Oh, maybe in those you are. characters. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was just you. No, okay. Yeah, okay. no, maybe I am too. Okay. So uh, you mentioned Jesus. It helps us understand Jesus. And I think one of the main examples of that is looking at Jesus' family tree. Yeah. And so, you know, we look in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in particular, and we see this genealogy. Um, Who are some of the interesting people in that list? Well, the whole genealogy is fascinating. Uh, You know, we, we look at it in one way. We could look at it, you know, it begins that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. In many ways, the genealogy is shaped around that. Uh, so we could look at that, and we could think about them as being, as you mentioned, great heroes of faith, and and certainly they are. But I mean, everyone in that list, we can also think of 
terrible things mm. they did. I mean, yeah. you know, think about Abraham lying about Sarah so that she gets taken into the Pharaoh's harem. Or think about David um, taking Bathsheba sexually by force and then having her husband murdered. Uh, in between there, you'd see Judah. I mean, oh, whoa. He does some things we don't even want to talk about out loud yeah. that Judah does. So there's something there about just seeing those kind of characters. But there's something else that Matthew does in his genealogy is that he throws a few women in there, which wouldn't have been typical for a Jewish genealogy. And if you look at the women he chooses to include, they're not the women you would necessarily expect. I mean, if you're thinking... Okay, what women is he going to put there? Well, wouldn't he put Sarah, who was married to Abram? Or, or Rachel, you know, who was married to Jacob? Those kind of things. And those are not the women who are there. Well, I noticed a couple of things about the women who are there. First of all, um, almost all of them are Gentiles. That's interesting. Yeah. He's choosing women who are Gentiles. It seems to me that Matthew is wanting to show right off that the gospel is not for just for Jews and not just for Jewish people. It's like that that was hinted at earlier. All along. He's always been bringing in people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Mm. Um, It it really gets going, you know, once you get in Acts, that really those floodgates open in terms of inviting people from every tribe, tongue, and and nation. But it's not absolutely new. Yeah. Because as you look at these women uh, in the Old Testament who are included, they're all Gentiles, but then something else stands out about them. Um, all of these women have a hint of sexual scandal. Uh, first, the first woman mentioned is Tamar, and you know she's the woman who, uh, because Judah will not give her another of his sons to marry her after the one she's married to or two she's married to die, uh, she dresses as a prostitute. And Judah sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. I mean, so there's sexual scandal by her, her father-in-law. Then you've got Rahab, who runs a brothel in Jericho. Uh, but when the Israel, the spies, you could call them, or the advance team for Israel comes in, she she's like, I've heard of your God. And and I, I, want, I want him. Uh, so that she takes hold of faith. And she actually, not only does she get into the family, I mean, she she is evidently the mother of Boaz, and then we know Boaz is the father of Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. Yeah. I mean, so here's this woman who's run this brothel, but then she gets in on that family line. Um, so when I say you've got Tamar, you've got Rahab, you, you've got Ruth. Um, Ruth is that one who is married to Boaz. And what is her history? Well, she comes from the Moabite people. Yeah, she's not even an Israelite. Not an Israelite. And she, I mean, if she trace her family back, the, who are the Moabites? That's the, the family group, the nation founded by Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters. So you've got sexual scandal after sexual scandal. And then you get to marry. And... Even though she has never slept with a man, she's she's pregnant. Um, so, what's behind all that? Why? Well, what I think, I, I think one, I think, I mean, I think Matthew's doing many things there, as I mentioned, that showing how Gentiles have always been included in the people of God. 
I don't know if this was intention, but I sure think it has an effect. And it just shows that to be a member of Jesus's family is not about perfect or even good behavior. That there is another way that people come into the family of Jesus. And it's by taking hold of him by faith. This is how we get into the family of Jesus, that we um, take hold of him by faith. And it's really good news for people who might think, you know, I've sinned too much or too badly. I've done something that could, should, should bar me from being related savingly to Jesus Christ. And you just look at his family if you see, okay, this is the family that God actually chose for his son to be born into, which is fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's not um, just that their their stories are in the Bible and that they are maybe praised for their faith. God, the triune God, chose, chose to have the son born as a human as part of that family. Into a messy family, yeah. into a messy, sinful family. And this says to you and me that Jesus welcomes flagrant but forgiven sinners and that we're the kind of people he wants to be related to forever i mean that that's an incredible that's a that's a good word of grace Mm. for people like you and me yeah yeah i guess following up on that what what word of encouragement or what word of an uh exhortation would you offer to the person man or woman who does come to the bible and often feel like maybe they're just their perception of it is i can't match up to these people in here this book is a book about uh you know these righteous people who did good things for god and then they look around at other Christians around them, um, maybe Christians who are recognized widely as doing great things to God, being good, great men and women of God, and they just feel like, I, I, I can't do that. I can't be that. Well, here, here's good news. Uh, we see in the Gospels that you're just the kind of person Jesus came for. Because he says, I didn't come for the righteous. I, I, didn't, you know, I didn't come for people who have it all together. I came for those who are sick. Um, I didn't come for those who have everything figured out. He says, you know, I I came to seek after the lost. So two times in the book of Luke, he makes these very clear purpose statements for why he came. And one of them comes in the midst of the story of Zacchaeus. So here's this guy. He is a crook. He is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. Mm. And what does that mean? Like, what, what would that? Well, that would have meant that he bought his way into being able to collect taxes for Rome, which was a terribly corrupt system. I mean, so tax collector is not, um, it's not just, it's not the IRS. Tax collector means scoundrel. It means crook because not only is he a sellout to Rome, which would have lost him because he would of have been friends, Jewish. He w- this was a Jewish person who sold out to Rome and was taking advantage of his friends and neighbors because he not only collected what he had to pass along to Rome, he, he was free to add whatever he wanted on top. He had that kind of power mm. to be able to demand whatever was wanted. And that's why he was so hated in the community is that he took plenty more than he deserved because he, he had the freedom to do so. But why, where and why is he in the Gospels? So he's there in the city of Jericho. Jesus is working his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, where he is going. He knows what's going to happen. He's, he's stated it clearly. He's going to be arrested and 
uh, tried and put to death. So he's past, He's on his way. He goes through Jericho, but all the people of the town are going out to see him because they've, they've heard about all these miracles and, and they're headed out to the road he's going to pass by and, and, and they're probably wondering, is he going to do one of those miracles that he's done? Mm. And so they're all out there. And interestingly, here is Zacchaeus and he's interested too. And, and I have to wonder, why is he interested? And it made me think about, okay, there are other tax collectors in the story of the Gospels. Like, there's one at the very beginning of the Gospel named Levi, yeah. Matthew. And what do we read about? That he's sitting there collecting taxes, and Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And it says he immediately left everything and followed him. So I wonder, did Zacchaeus hear about Matthew? Did Zacchaeus wonder to himself, what is so compelling to this man that this person whom Zacchaeus probably knew, Matthew, would just leave everything and follow him. Because it's not I like, got to see that guy. It's not like either of them probably was, they weren't living an impoverished fisherman's life. No. They, they probably had a pretty good. Exactly. So why does he give up all of that? What is it about this Jesus? And then I also wonder if Zacchaeus had heard about the stories that Jesus told. Because I imagine usually tax collectors were the butt of most jokes. Because they're always the bad guy. But then he hears about this Jesus. And when he tells stories, the Pharisees are the bad people in the story. And the tax collector is the good guy in the story. What, what story am I talking about? You know, remember how Jesus tells a story about the Pharisee, you know, who, who comes to the temple. And he's, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Mm. But then the tax collector comes and he beats his breast. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm totally unworthy. But yet he... He's, he asks for forgiveness. So the way Jesus tells stories is that the Pharisee is made to look like he has no place with God. Mm. And yet the tax collector finds a place in the heart of God through his recognition of his own sin. And similarly, did Zacchaeus hear about how Jesus was called a friend of sinners and tax collectors? That he liked to actually have dinner. With tax collectors. So, I mean, all of those things make me wonder, okay, Zacchaeus, mm-hmm. no wonder he wants to go out to see Jesus. So maybe he heads out there and his perception about what is happening is that he is seeking to see and know who Jesus is. But that's just his perception because actually Jesus is the one seeking that mm-hmm. day. Yeah. And he walks through Jericho and you know, everyone here who is, is in his line of sight along the road might be capturing his ten- attention, except that Jesus is seeking someone who's lost. And so his attention is drawn to that man in the tree. And he calls out to him, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to your house today. And it, it's, it's such an interesting picture of here is this rich, powerful man it's kind of childlike that he climbs a tree. Mm. And then Jesus says, I'm going to your house. And it says he hurries down. I mean, you could just picture him scurrying down this tree and running to get everything ready in his house. And we don't have a record really of what Jesus said to him in that interaction. Except we have this record of this announcement Jesus makes. He says, salvation has come to this house today. And then we have the record of what Zacchaeus intends to do as a result of being sought out by Jesus and he is going to he's going to look over the log books and figure out okay 
who are all the people that I charged them more than I should have. And I'm not just going to return to them what I charged them that I should have. I'm going to give them four times that amount. This is why it's beautiful to look at some of these people because we look at them and we see, wow, um, Jesus seeks out not the beautiful people, not the people with the good behavior, but he seeks out people who are just absolutely lost, don't know where their life is headed. What was the deal with the Pharisees and the scribes? I think, except for Nicodemus, they really are generally portrayed in a pretty, yeah. they're kind of the, the, the bad guys totally. of the Gospels. Right. Um, everyone else kind of uh, gets mercy from Jesus and is, you know, as Jesus is kind of defending them at times, but not the Pharisees and the scribes. What, what was their beef with yeah. Jesus and his message? Well, you know, you and I look at them and we just, we do see them as evil because we know where the story is headed. We know that they're going to set themselves against Jesus and that they're going to have his way so that he is crucified. And we also see them through Jesus's eyes when he reveals their incredible hypocrisy. But that's not how the people of their day saw him. I mean, the people of the day, they, the Pharisees were heroes to them. The, the Pharisees had actually shown great courage during what's called the Maccabean uh, revolt, and, you know, that 400-year period between the, the end of the prophets prophesying and when we pick up the Gospels. I mean, the Jewish people had gone through incredible uh, suffering and oppression during that time. And the, the Pharisees, or who becomes the Pharisees, these are people who actually stood up for saying, no, you, you can't take away our distinctiveness as Jewish people, even though you are ruling over us. And so we're going to, and they stood up, some of them died. Um, so in the time of Jesus, Pharisees were honored. They were seen as the people who maintained who we are as Jews in spite of whatever rule it was of the day. And at that point, now it's Roman rule. And we're going to be who we are. We're, we're going to keep this law. But of course, what they did was they, they took the law as it had been given to Moses. So they took little things that applied to particular people and made them apply to everyone. Mm. Um, so a law uh, about a person washing. Think about the laws back in, in um, Exodus and Leviticus about how priests needed to wash before they entered the Holy of Holies. Right. And so what do they do? They take, Everybody's got to have these massive washing, cleansing rituals. Or they take something about fasting at, you know, particular times in the Jewish calendar year. And they say, okay, no, everybody's got to fast twice a week. So they take these things and make them far more intense, far more burdensome. Or, or even think about the Sabbath. I mean, the Sabbath was given to God's people as a gift, as a way to demonstrate that they trusted that God would take care of them by not working that day of the week. It was given to him as a gift to focus, to look back at creation and look back at the redemption of God's people uh, from Egypt. But even more, to look forward, to look forward at the new creation to come. It's, it's, it's meant to be a gift. It's for them. And, and what do the Pharisees do? They take it and they make all these burdensome laws. You know, you can't pick a grain of wheat. And you can't do this and you can't do that. And it just becomes a burden on people instead of a gift. And so... Why do you think it is? It seems like the Sabbath issue is is often comes up in the Gospels. Jesus is often doing things related to the Sabbath that they don't like. Why do you think that's such a prominent uh, Because they've point? taken it 
and made it uh, they've loaded all of this stuff on it and, and and made it as if if you don't follow our rules so it's not that Jesus throws off the Sabbath in terms of what God has said and what came down on the mountain with Moses what Jesus is rejecting is all of these things that the Pharisees have added to it um, and the whole import, the whole way they have reshaped it to, to be a burden to people. And Jesus just says, this is not what it was meant to be. And what they've also are totally missing, Jesus makes clear when he says, I am actually the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, he in himself, he's the one who's going to bring his people into true Sabbath rest. And he's going to do that through the cross, experiencing the greatest restlessness, the greatest alienation from God, uh, so that, joined to him, he can lead us into this rest and into this new relationship with God in this new creation. And so the conflict is constantly over the Sabbath between Jesus and the Pharisees because they've taken this thing that he's the Lord of and they have made it something it was never meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned how the, Jesus to them said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I've often been kind of struck by it seems like at certain points in the Gospels, the Pharisees are actually ahead of the curve, even ahead of the disciples sometimes in terms of recognizing the significance of some of Jesus's claims recognizing that Jesus is claiming... That's why they're some, so offended, because yeah, they some, hear him clearly, right? right? <laughs> but sometimes more than it seems like anyone yeah. else, they get that yeah. Jesus is making some pretty pretty shocking claims about himself. Making claims to deity, making claims to be the fulfillment of Daniel's son of man, all mm. of those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it is fascinating. Um, so we, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about maybe the biggest scoundrel in Scripture, and that would be Judas. Um, the the person who uh, betrayed Jesus. Um, what do you think we can learn from him and his example? You know, you look at Judas. I just think to myself, how can someone spend three years that close to Jesus and yet his heart be as cold as Judas's was toward Jesus? Kind of wonder that, don't you? But then we find out, oh. He's been pilfering from the bag. And so all the way along, we're, we're seeing something about the heart of Judas there. He's been seeking to use this closeness to Jesus as a way to enrich himself financially. And all the way along, he's been stealing and he hasn't come clean about it. And, you know, there's something about un ongoing unconfessed sin that makes our hearts really hard. That makes it, that, that builds up a way of resistance to the person and the message of Jesus. I, I tend to think that's part of what happened here with Judas. So that, it wasn't that, that he set out to betray Jesus from the very beginning. I don't think so. I think, I think he... I think like all of the disciples, I mean, they just thought, okay, he's a king and he's going to have a kingdom. I mean, just think about at the at the very end of, you know, James and John Peter and they're fighting about who's going to be, you know, 
have the right be the right hand guy when he comes into his kingdom. So they're all thinking they've got something to gain mm-hmm. from being a part of Jesus' kingdom. Um, and and I think it's near near the near the end when you, when you're coming when Jesus is getting close to going to Jerusalem and he's he's being pretty clear and honest. I mean, he has not sold this discipleship thing with him falsely mm-hmm. because he's like anybody wants to follow after me, they have to pick up their own cross. He's clear, and he's said numerous times, especially right as they're entering into Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen, guys. We're going to Jerusalem, and I am going to, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised. But he's really clear that he's headed to, to go to Jerusalem. When we read in Luke 9, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus has been really clear. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And I think maybe at some point, Judas begins to listen. And he's like, mm. you know what? If he's going to be put to death, this is not going to end up like I was hoping it yeah. would. I, this is not going to be putting a bunch more in my pockets. And so maybe I've given three years to this guy and I'm going to get nothing out of it. So hmm. maybe maybe worse than nothing, I'm going to get killed along yeah, with this exactly. guy. Yeah, exactly. So he begins to think to himself, okay, how can I turn this around and get something about it? I know. I've got this inside knowledge of the schedule and the workings of, of Jesus, the patterns of Jesus. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they want to put him to death. So how can I get at least something out of this? Okay, I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to say, okay, and here's the words he used. How much will you give me? He goes, how much will you give me? If I betray Jesus's schedule to you and set up a way for you to be able to arrest him at a time in which the people who believe in him and follow him won't be able to be a problem. And so he makes a steal, you know, like so the crowds of people, the crowds of people surrounded him because and, Judas yeah. knows, OK, I, evidently Jesus has often withdrawn to this mountain of olives at night to pray with his disciples. This is evidently not the first time this happens. And so he tells them, OK, here's where you can go and you can arrest him at night and be able to take him without a riot happening. And. So we just see clearly, and so maybe we're not completely surprised, even though he's been with him for three years. For three years, he's been counting on this leading to lining his pockets. He's already been lining his pockets. And then he discovers, okay, I, I believe G- what Jesus says, that, the, that, the, uh, that he's going to die and that the religious leaders are going to put him to death. So, okay, here's a way I can enrich myself even through that. I'll betray. I'll, I'll show them how they can do that. And... But then, of course, once he does it, you know, I don't know what point it is, but he he realizes here's this one who's done nothing for him except be kind to him and give him the the blessings of being close to him. And he begins to regret it. I've often wondered about that. It's just like what it's almost like what did he think was going to happen? Yeah. When he betrayed Jesus. I I think I mean, there's a. There's a difference between thinking you know what's going to happen and seeing it with your own eyes. And when he sees Jesus cruelly spit upon, abused, hung on a cross, um, 
It must have become very real to him. Mm. Now, what's really sad is he goes back. He throws the money at the feet of who? At the feet of the chief priests. These were, this is the place that the chief priests were the ones you went to to find forgiveness. They were supposed to be mediators of mercy. But, you know, he goes back, he, he throws he throws the money down. He wants forgiveness for his part in the shedding of innocent blood. Well, these chief, chief priests, their hands are covered in blood. They have no ability to mediate mercy to him mm. and no interest in it. And yet they still reject the money, saying it's blood money. Which is just a joke. I mean, you think about these guys. They've always been about keeping the law. And, of course, you know, they have completely forgotten the law when it comes to like bearing false witness they've been recruiting false witnesses against jesus Hmm. conveniently ignored the law there um but then here oh yeah we can't have that because that's you know blood money it's such a hypocrisy so yeah caiaphas goes on to to say um you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it's better for it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John adds this, this note. He did not know, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So here's Caiaphas. He's just trying to keep the peace. And he thinks if there is a you know a big hubbub among the jewish people and it has you know it's and it's religious oriented we're going to lose the temple our jobs are going to be threatened as the people who have kind of bought our way into uh, supervising the jewish people um, through the, the the priesthood and so he's saying you know we don't want any of that to happen you know we don't want to lose the temple and our way of life so it's going to be better for one man to die. In other words, this Jesus who's causing problems, who's causing a rift. Some people are following him. Some people are not. It's going to be better for him to die than for us to lose our whole way of life. And, you know, for the Romans to come in and have to squash some kind of big riot and for the nation to perish the way he says. But what John points out is that there's he's saying something he doesn't even realize he's saying. I mean, at the heart, at, at what he's saying, it's really the heart of the gospel. When he says it's going to be better for one man to die rather than for you know all people the nation of paris in 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 other words it's the beauty of substitution jesus is going to die and he's going to die so that all who put their faith and hope in him john puts it you know will not perish um so yeah caiaphas is a fascinating figure because i think of him if he's the high priest he's the one person in the nation who should be seeing that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If he's the high priest, he's the one, his main job, the main job of the high priest is to mediate the mercy of God to God's people. But he's forgotten that. He has forsaken that. And um, instead of doing that, he is out to kill the one who is 
the great mediator, the one who is the great high priest. He's blind to seeing who Jesus is, and he's blinded by his own ambition and his uh, just blindness to who Jesus is, and he can't see it, and so he puts Jesus to death. He doesn't even realize that actually his position is going to be eradicated just a few years later when the temple is destroyed. Um, he can't stop that from happening. He can't stop that. He, what he should have seen is to see Jesus and see, oh, you are the great high priest. You are the one who the role that I am taking has always meant to become obsolete once the day the great high priest comes. He, he should have seen that, yeah. but he didn't. Well, what a great example, uh, just circling back to what you said at the very beginning, that here is a scoundrel, a true scoundrel in, in the, the truest sense of the word, who nevertheless, through his own words, testifies to something about Jesus, really testifies to the heart of the gospel, as you said, uh, and, and, and in uh, a very profound way. Yeah, absolutely. Nancy, thank you so much for taking You're some welcome. time today to, to talk us through some of these these really amazing figures. It, it strikes me that the more time we spend studying them and thinking about them, seeing what the Bible says about them, the more we see that there's so much there, there's so much to learn. Isn't that the beautiful thing about the Bible? Yeah, it's that not... it's it's a never-ending well of insight into Jesus, that then the more we know him, the more we see him through even these various characters, the more it generates love for him. Mm. And that's what we want. We want to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Bible itself helps us to do that. Mm, absolutely. All right. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. That was Nancy Guthrie on some of the scoundrels of Scripture. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.